If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey everybody, the July Rotto Rounds Up is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And I gotta say, July was a very, very big month. Jen and I played 22 new games and expansions. And, oh my gosh, I have got a very, very long list of games to talk to you about today. Although, I'm actually going to be going over 24. In fact, I could go over 25, but one of them I'm not actually allowed to talk about until next month. So that'll have to wait. Speaking of next month, like always, you can go to comingsoon.rotto.com to see what I'm planning today to be covering in the month of August. But that's for looking forward. Today, we are looking backwards at a whole bunch of fun times that Jen and I had in the month of July. Well, before we get to us, of course, there is Shay and Ryan, my two channel contributors. Both of them uh, put a video up. Shay's was... Nope, not Shay's. I started with Ryan's. Dead Reckoning. Uh, man, we are going through a bit of a board game pirate renaissance right now. Uh, Dead Reckoning is currently the big kahuna because it had such a monstrously huge uh, successful Kickstarter. And while I have not played this game, I can certainly say from having watched Ryan's video, uh, this is a very big and ambitious uh, pirating simulation um, that leverages designer John D. Clare's really cool... Uh, what do you call them? Uh, Mylar transparent cards that allow you to combine different cards to make super cards that represent the crew of your ship as you sail the Spanish main, looting and fighting and having all kinds of adventures. It was a hugely popular, big success, and with good reason. And if you want to know more, you can check out Ryan's video. All right. Where he spent a good deal of time dressed up as a pirate because that's commitment. All right. But don't worry. He didn't really go down the, the rabbit hole of doing lots of R-mateys or anything like that. He was pretty subtle about it. But anyway, get, moving on, Shay covered Tourists, which was also a game that was on Kickstarter. By the way, I should say both Ryan and Shay's games were paid previews, although, what the heck, I haven't played either of these games. So I'm just talking about my impressions of the game from having watched their videos. Tourists, though, actually was a game I was originally going to cover for the channel because I love the idea of this game. It is a worker placement game where we are sending our, I think they're called agents or spies or something like, out to various parts on the board to gather resources, to convert them into points and complete objectives. Kind of typical adventure worker placement like what you see in Lords of Waterdeep and plenty of other games. But what's interesting about this game is, in addition to the player's workers, there are gigantic behemoth miniature monsters that are traveling around the board, going from space to space, and eating our workers and sending them into their belly. And so, it is such an interesting idea 
this concept of, yeah, I, I want to go over there, but there's a very good chance he will get eaten if I go over there. Maybe I'm okay with him getting eaten, because if I can prove to the council that I'm really committed to the betterment of our society, well, what better way to prove that than to put my people in danger and, uh, you know, and get more resources out of the council because I need them because all my people keep getting eaten. It's really clever. And I have to admit, it's probably not for me and Jen, because a big part of the, uh, the AI for the big monsters that move around is players getting to choose for them. So you could really, depending on your situation, direct them towards your opponent and mess them up. And so I wasn't interested in that, but the game comes with what looks like a very solid solo mode as well. And so that's why I was originally going to film, but like I said, 22 games Jen I played. I did not have time to cover everything, and I was so happy Shay was able to step up. And I got to tell you, he almost convinced me that Jen and I could enjoy the full competitive version of this, too. It's definitely something I would like to give a try someday. And if you want to know more, go check out his run-through <clears throat> of tourists. But anyway, uh, with those out of the way, let's get to the games Jen and I actually played. Uh, and as always, this is going to be a countdown, starting with our least favorite and ending with a new game of the month. So, game 22 on the list was Back to the Future, Back in Time, which is one of two Back to the Future board games that have come out within the space of a few weeks of each other. I guess it's celebrating the 35th anniversary of the original Back to the Future. I don't know why the 35th anniversary is such a big deal, but there's all kinds of stuff. New 4K uh, releases of the movies and all sorts of things, and two games came out. Now, I've already done a run-through for the other one, which is Back to the Future, Dice Through Time. And uh, we liked that one. It wasn't perfect. I felt there was a little bit of work that could have been done with tightening up the board for two-player gaming. And my fingers are crossed that the developers will actually make that an official variant because they seemed interested in it when I suggested it to them. But in the meantime, Jen and I finally got the other game from the Prospero Hall design team. And uh, this was very interesting to contrast and compare. Now, obviously, it comes in at the bottom of my list. This is clearly not a game for me and Jen. At the end of the day, we got about halfway through our first game, and Jen says, yeah, this kind of feels like busy work. Because... Back to the Future Back in Time is 100% pick up and deliver. This is all about only the events of the first Back to the Future. There's no actual time travel in this game at all. And players are just playing as Doc or Marty or Einstein the dog or Jennifer, who now actually was in 1955 to make the game work. And what you're doing is uh, focusing on a few different objectives that must be done. George and Lorraine must fall in love. And so you have to actually travel around the board, grab George and or Elaine, bring them together on to the same spot and then try to convince them to fall in love. But every step of the way, Biff is another character on the board moving kind of under his own simple AI that's dice-driven. And while you're doing that, you're also trying to get the DeLorean into position uh, to make the, the big 88-mile-an-hour run. You are getting a bunch of equipment and you're also solving all the problems that happen in the movie. All the events of the movie and the characters, they keep showing up. And if you spend time going and interacting with those events, those are ways that you can become more powerful and do more stuff. So, every time you play, you're going to get... You have to do the main core things, but you're going to get a mishmash of different events that pop up and, and unexpected ways. Sometimes George and Lorraine tend to stick together. Sometimes they stay very apart. Uh, sometimes Biff is really in your face. Sometimes you can just knock him out and he doesn't bother you for a while. So there's a fair amount of variety. But really, at the end of the day, the game is all about 
traveling from one from A to B, getting the item you need there, and then taking it to C. Whether that item is George or Lorraine, or it's getting rid of Biff, or whatever it might be. And usually, whenever you get from A to B, when you get to B, you have to roll dice and do some simple roll to resolve to see if you succeed. And players have different colored dice that have different probabilities of being able to do different things. One really nice thing we appreciated was if two players are on the same spot, they can give dice to each other. which was a really nice touch. But at the end of the day, um, for our taste, the game was too focused on more immediate, right, this is what we need to do right now, this is what we're going to do next round. And the game difficulty, it can be challenging. And and the final few rounds of the game, you can get to some really interesting conundrums as time is running out. But for the most part of the game, we felt like, right, okay, well, this is obviously what I should do. I should go over there. These are the dice I have. I'll roll the dice. Hopefully that will work. And then you're obviously going to go do this. And it was really wonderfully thematic. And if you are looking for a cooperative game that's about the same level as the base game of Flashpoint Fire Rescue, I think you might enjoy Back to the Future, Back in Time. But for Jen and me, I think the other one, Dice Through Time, is the winner because it had more depth going on in the simulation that you try to navigate. Uh, So that was it. Uh, My number 22, Back to the Future, Back in Time. Then we have number 21, Garum. Now, this is very interesting because this could have easily been one of my top 10 of the month if I had played it as a three- or four-player game. Here's the deal. This is a brilliant, bright, vibrant, colorful tile land game with a lot of really interesting depth to it and a fresh theme to boot. But as a two-player game, well, I was not a fan at all of the two-player implementation. Here's the basic idea. There are all these vats uh, that the ancient Romans are using to mix up this garum, which is a, a, a fish sauce that apparently is an incredible delicacy. And people actually told me uh, when I posted on Instagram about it that, oh my gosh, this is amazing. There are still places in Portugal you can go and get this today and whatnot. So, Jen wants to try this fish sauce, if nothing else. But players have three tiles, and on their turn, um, or actually, I say every round, one vat is where we are all going to place a tile. And then once that vat is filled, then next round, another vat is going to be chosen randomly, and we're all going to place a tile over there. And of my three tiles, I'm going to put one in this vat. But my tile has fish of it of my color and probably your color, and maybe Bob's color, and maybe Betty's color. And when I put this down in one of the four slots of the vat, I have to be really careful to put this in such a way that it maximally benefits me and does not help my opponents. Because in addition to putting the tile down and rotating it in whichever vat I'm going to put it in, I also have the opportunity to claim rows and columns that are... um, you know, that triangulate where that vat is. So, if I'm the green player, I am trying to get, in a given row, all of my green fish lined up and one of my uh, apprentice meeples at the end of that row so that I can score a ton of points. But for me to do that, maybe depending on the t- on the tiles I've got and where I'm trying to place it, I might have to put the blue um, fish in a row that will really help the blue player. The blue player might get more out of it than I do. And so I have to decide, am I going to do that or am I going to sacrifice what's best for me to ensure my opponents don't get the best stuff? And that was so cool and so compelling. Uh, because you only have a certain number of apprentices. And sometimes you say, well, you know what? I'm going to... I'm gonna 
ensure that blue doesn't get anything good. I'm not going to get anything good out of this either, but that's okay because I won't claim this row or column, and I'll ignore it. But then, as the game goes on, suddenly, in later rounds, when you work on different vats, suddenly you do care about this column because it's still built up pretty strongly. Or somebody else might claim that column and score a lot of points, so you might grab it just to keep them out. Really clever. A very bright, colorful, vibrant game, and as a three- or four-player game, it's great. Here's what they do as a two-player game. In a two-player game, each player picks two colors. So I am the green and the yellow player. You are the blue and the red player. Oh, by the way, the game is fairly colorblind friendly because even if you have a problem with the colors, the fish icons themselves are unique. So it's still easy to tell. That's just as an aside. Well done, developers. But anyway, so in a two-player game, I am trying to do my best for green and for yellow. And that's fine. It works. But... It, I, I can imagine what this game would feel like. It would be so incredibly tense, um, you know, you know, full of tough trade-offs and compromises. If I only had one color that I'm trying to pursue, but now that I'm trying to pursue 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 two colors, it works. And Jen and I, we were engaged and slightly entertained, but after we were done, we were man, I wish we could play this as a four-player game, because like I said, this would have easily made my top ten of the month. And I, you know, I think this could go up there with an Azul in terms of really easy to teach, very fast to play, very simple decisions, and yet very deep, crunchy gameplay. I think Garum or Garum sits in that wheelhouse but only if you're going to play it at the higher player count. So as a two-player game, it didn't quite work for us. But still, I'm glad I got a chance to play it, and maybe someday I'll get to play it as a three or four. But anyway, that was our number 21, Garum. Then we move on to number 20, Spirits of the Forest, the Moonlight Expansion, which is actually, it was a paid Kickstarter preview for a game that's, I think, on Kickstarter right now still. And here's the deal. Spirits of the Forest is a hugely popular tile drafting game. Just monstrously successful. Uh, I was shocked when I went on Board Game Geek and saw how many people are loving it and how highly it's rated. I had skipped it when I had the chance to cover it in the past because it looked like just a really simple, abstract game. But having played it now, just Spirits of the Forest, it is surprisingly deep and really good, and I can see why everybody loves it. The Moonlight expansion is interesting because it now adds um, a bunch of new content which turns the game into a solo or co-op experience if you don't want to play it competitive. And that's very impressive. It also includes a bunch of new stuff for the competitive game as well. So for people who like Spirits of the Forest, there's a really cool new feature for competitive. But what did I think? Well, as a solo game, I thought it was phenomenal. Really, really good. If I were judging this predominantly as a solo game, it would have been much, much higher. And it was a good two-player uh, two cooperative game as well. I enjoyed it. Jen did not. Because here's how they turn uh, Moonlight, which I tend to think of as predominantly, it is a solo expansion that you can play cooperative, kind of like the Oniverse games. Here's how they turn the solo game into a cooperative game. Um, we are, it's, we, it's not like players have unique special powers. We're trying to achieve the exact same goal we're achieving in solo. We're doing the exact same gameplay of, of moving these uh, creatures around and using them as a basis to collect tiles and all that. In a solo game, we are not allowed to speak. We must remain completely silent. So on my turn, I do a solo action, or what I would do in the solo game, and after my turn's over, I leave the board in a situation that I hope you understand what I was trying to do, and I hope you do the same thing. But you might have seen some other opportunity, and you end up doing something, because we can't talk strategy. 
That is an interesting way to turn a solo game into a cooperative game. I felt it worked. Jen did not. And so that's why it's coming in fairly low. But, um... Actually, as I understand it, I think the developers... You might want to check out the Kickstarter page. I think they're working on a non-total complete, no communication, blockout, blackout embargo uh, version of the cooperative as well. I haven't tried that. But like I said, as a solo game, it's great. And if you're looking for a very specific, very quiet, very, I just have to read your mind and I hope you're reading my mind experience, you might enjoy it as a co-op as well. But I just got to say, folks, Spirits of the Forest is great as a competitive tile drafting game and it gets even better with this Moonlight expansion. So that's all of these elements come together in one expansion for Spirits of the Forest Moonlight. Then we move on to Nevada City, which this might be a bit early to say, but I think this might be the heaviest Euro-style American West simulation the industry has yet seen. I'm comparing this with Hangtown, and I'm comparing this with Carson City, and Coloma, and I mean, this game is big. It's physically gigantic, and it is incredibly rich and deep. There is a ton of stuff going on in basically what's a a pretty straightforward worker placement game. I've got my old West Frontier family, you've got yours, and the most interesting thing about this game is every one of my family members has different strengths, and one of those strengths is how much they can actually get done. When it's my turn, I have to pick Ma or Pa or Little Billy or, or Little Jane or, you know, whatever their names are, and they are good at different things, but some characters could only do one or two actions. Some characters can do two or three. So when I pick Paw, who can do three actions, on my turn, I'm going to do three worker placement positionings, not just one. And that is really cool. It means you get a lot of stuff done. Um, well, depending on which one of your family members you're doing. And so I might want to use Paw because I'll get three actions, but Paw is really terrible at raising crops. And right now, this is the turn where I should raise crops because there's going to be an event that's going to cause flooding and I need to get my crops grown now before my land goes fallow or, or whatever it might be. And... um but I really want to use Paw because I need to do three actions. If I use a uh, little Billy, I could do a better crop raising, but he's only going to do one action because he was wounded from a gunfight last round. Ah! That's really, really neat. It's a very fresh and unique idea. I've seen a lot of games that have variable powers for workers, but never anything quite like this, and it's really sharp. And if that weren't enough, there's a million other things too. This is a worker placement game where you build the board, because the longer the game goes, the more players will build buildings that are the worker placement spots. And we've seen this in other worker placement games too. But here... If you build a building, it is so powerful because everybody has to pay you to use your building and you get to use it for free. So there is a mad rush to build these buildings and use our family members to best effect. Also grow our family, bring new people in to marry our children so we have more abilities we can do next turn. It's very impressive. Why does it come in at number 19? There's a couple of issues. You can watch my final thoughts. I definitely had some problems with the two-player scaling. Um, that I think could have been done better. The game is a bit on the long side. 
Which, I mean, hey, for, if, you know, for some people, I, I think they would embrace that. But for us, we would have liked to see maybe be a little bit shorter. And uh, also, I did have some issues with uh, kind of representation and, and the way it's addressed, some, some historical verisimilitude uh, issues. Again, you can go watch my final thoughts. Um, but don't be misled, folks. Um, this is a brilliant, brilliant game. And uh, while it didn't work for me and Jen because we had a, a few little... Um, uh, peccadillos that came to the fore uh, based on our preferences for things, I do think it is up there with your Carson Cities and your Colomas and all of that. A really brilliant game with a lot of very fresh ideas. And not for nothing. I did spend some time talking to the designer of the game and gave him some feedback about, boy, this would have really made the two-player game a lot better. And he was taking a lot of that on board. And he has a history of releasing additional variants post-release. So I suspect Nevada City only has room to grow and improve over time the more people play it. So anyway, go check out my run-through to see more. But that was number 19, Nevada City. Then we go on to Lizard Wizard, which was another paid Kickstarter preview. And this is basically the sequel to Raccoon Tycoon. You kind of can see the uh, parallel with the names. It's a very simple... Um, well, actually, Raccoon Tycoon was a very simple, very gateway-style commodities market game where you are collecting resources, and at the same time you're doing that, you're adjusting the value of resources. And usually, as you collect resources, you make other resources more valuable that's going to create opportunities probably for your opponents more than you. And you know that's just a rough, choppy sea you have to sail. Lizard Wizard does the same thing. It changes the subject matter from you know uh, 19th century railroad uh, tycoon stuff into a fantasy potion spell casting universe with dungeons to crawl, push your luck minigames. And I gotta say, if you played Raccoon Tycoon, this is, and you probably liked it if you did, this is a no-brainer because it t- it's the next step. It takes the core gameplay of Raccoon Tycoon, which is already very good, but adds new elements. Uh, creates a really almost a Gateway Plus style experience. And Jen and I definitely enjoyed it. We had a good time. Now, I would still say it's a bit on the light side for us. We're Jen and I are not looking for Gateway games. But if we were, this would be a Gateway game to own. To uh, Because there's so much flexibility with all the different spells you can cast, and different types of mini games with the dungeon delving and all of that. And of course, at the heart of all of it, still a very sharp and clever system where on your turn you'll play a card to gather some um, spell reagents but you will make other reagents more valuable which means other players might then want to sell get a lot of mana so they can cast big spells or bring in familiars all kinds of stuff the game is gorgeous it's very fast playing and really well designed it it, it definitely builds upon the strengths of the already sharp raccoon tycoon and that's my number 18 if you're looking for a gateway definitely check out lizard wizard Okay, then we got number 17, which is the Reavers of Midgard. And this is an interesting one. Um, the run-through was actually done by Shay. Hey, Shay, welcome back. And, uh, but, and, and he did a great job, uh, definitely showed off the, the core gameplay of this game, which is all about building up a Viking raiding party on your ship, getting some leaders in place, and then going off and looting and pillaging, fighting sea monsters or enemy ships. And it's all driven by worker placement. And uh, 
what's interesting about the video is Shay did the run-through, but Shay and I did a co-host Final Thoughts because we both played the game. And I just didn't have time to film it. So thank you very much, Shay, for uh, you know saving my bacon and getting this thing filmed. And I gotta say, both Shay and I were super impressed by this game. The, the, the most interesting thing about the worker placement element of it is the fact that um, this is one of those games where, hey, when I do an action, everybody gets to do that action. I just get the best version of it. I just get first dibs on things. But then everybody else gets to follow. Also, when I'm the one who triggers an action, generally, I'll get some nice bonus, and other players will get progressively weaker and weaker bonuses as it goes around the table. Um, that is always a very satisfying element because I recognize, you know what? I really want to do this right now, but I should get some more resources first. I don't need to do it because you'll probably do it. So I'll just wait for you to do it and then I'll piggyback off of you and I could do this other thing instead. Which means you're going to piggyback off of me. So there's a ton of synergy between players at all times. You are never out of this game. You are never just waiting for your turn to come around because you are doing stuff nonstop all the time. And if that weren't enough... Um, you have the ability to upgrade these worker placement actions so that if you or somebody else goes and uh, you know f- uh, fight sea monsters or you know raids forts or whatnot, if that's an action you have souped up with bonuses, you can get bonuses off of other people doing things. So even if I had no desire to do that, I might soup it up because I think you're going to do it a lot because you've got a public objective that makes you want to do it. So again, synergy is the name of this game, and it's really sharp. I also really appreciate that, unlike its predecessor, Champions of Midgard, this is a game um, that it can have luck if you want. When you go off into battle, you can be in a situation where you have to roll dice and then do luck mitigation to re-roll them by spending resources to defeat whatever you're trying to fight. Or you can just spend a little bit more time preparing and ensure that when you go face whatever the challenge is, you win guaranteed. So that's very much appreciated as well. So why is it at 17? Because I'll tell you, folks, this is a great worker placement game. If you love Vikings, if you love worker placement, it's great. Both Shay and I agreed, really, our only issue with it was, as a two-player game, the way they've done scaling, it is the game is, for our tastes... Well, I shouldn't say for him. You can go watch the final thoughts. But for Jens and my taste, it is too generous. Um, Because in a four-player game, um, when somebody goes and does an action... The fourth player doesn't get any bonuses and um, is you know very likely to maybe get frozen out of the best stuff. And so, uh, you know, and in a three-player game, what the whoever is the lead player gets to do two actions. Everybody else only gets to do one. So at the higher player counts, I suspect, and Shay confirmed that things get tighter. There is greater tension to rush after stuff that you want to get done. But in a two-player game, the way they emulate a four-player game is in, in three or four players, everybody just gets to do one action per round. In a two-player game, you get to do two. And in a game where a given action already does so much, you get so much done, to be able to do two actions of your choosing every round, it's just, it's overload. And I so would have rather developers had done two-player scaling, similar to, say, how um, Dungeon Pets does, which I talk about in the final thoughts. So, it is a brilliant game. And, you know, I suspect a lot of people will love the way two-player works because your cup runneth over. This game is just so overflowing with goodies. You are just constantly raking in all the loot. It just felt like for us, we rake in too much loot. And I would have liked the game to be a little bit tighter, a little bit more tense. Which again, Shay, I'm glad I did the final thoughts with him. He can confirm because he played as a three-player game. It definitely gets more tension-filled at the higher player counts. So um, that was number 17, The Reavers of Midgard.
Then we got number 16, uh, Tutankhamun, another paid Kickstarter preview. And this is interesting. This is a game that originally came out in 1993, designed by Reiner Knizia. And so 27 years later, it is getting a deluxe, lavish reprint upgrade. Um, and it is turning a game that in 1993 was pretty, pretty cutting edge in terms of uh, Euro gameplay design, but it has gotten such a huge makeover. It's really fascinating to see, to compare the original rules for the, versus the rules for our 27th edition, anniversary edition of Tutankhamun. Now, the game itself is a very simple, almost a gateway-style game again, but this is a gateway game that Jen and I definitely found much more compelling. Um, because each player is sailing their way down the Nile towards the uh, tomb of Tutankhamun. And we are trying to, wherever we land on the Nile, we grab that tile and we're trying to do lots of set collection. But in addition to set collection, which is all that was in the original game 27 years ago, now there are gods we can evoke to be able to get special powers and manipulate the Nile, manipulate our collections, uh, manipulate the, uh, the underworld. And... It's it's very, very sharp. Really fun, fast, very tension-filled. Uh, because you can see exactly whether you're winning um, you know, in, 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 a, in, in trying to do set collection majorities. Whoever has the most of a given set of artifacts and relics will get a lot of points. Whoever comes in second will get half as many points. And the, uh, the competition is fierce to get those majorities. And you have to sacrifice some to be able to do others. My problem with it this could have been a top tenner as well. Once again, the two-player we were a bit disappointed by. This is effectively a game where, again, it's all about competing to get those majorities. And new games have shown that um, when you're trying to work on a progress track and whoever at the end of the game makes it to the top of the progress track gets big bonuses, but whoever comes in second gets half the bonuses, what that means is I could work so incredibly hard to make sure I collect all six sarcophaguses, which means I'll get six points and nobody else gets anything. That could be a swing that wins me the game, right? Um, but because you know, I, I, no matter how hard I try and I leverage the god tokens, if I end up getting five and you just get one, then you get 50% of the points. And that's not right. Because in a four-player game, if you only got one, chances are you're not getting anything. Because somebody else beat you and got two. And then somebody else won and got three. But, so that just drives me nuts every time I see designers ignore the lessons of Belfort. And Belfort was the first time I ever saw a progress track where all they have to do is say, look, here's a metric that, yeah... It's, it's obvious how you get first. You get the most. But if you want to get second place, you have to beat some kind of game metric. And they didn't do that here, and it's very disappointing. That said, I made a suggestion in the uh, final thoughts video for what I thought should have been done to really make the underworld, which is kind of a discard pile for stuff that nobody grabs, and bring that into the game more. And I know the developers love it. And as I understand it, Reiner Knizia himself, the, design, the doctor of design, one of my heroes is testing my variant to see if it's going to make it into the game. So I'm very excited about that. It means Reiner Knizia knows my name, I think, anyway. Or maybe not. Maybe they maybe they didn't say, oh, we thought of it. Who knows? But regardless, that's all. I mean, Tutankhamun, again, like a few others on this list, as a higher player count game, could have been a top 10 easy. Two-player, though, I think with the tiniest tweak, it could still be a top 10, and I'm very excited. Um, and it's still on Kickstarter, so hopefully we'll find out before the Kickstarter campaign is over. That was a paid preview for my number 16, Tutankhamun. Then 15 is Cosmic Encounter Duel. 
Which I'll be honest, folks, this was not one I was even expecting to get in the mail or cover. I didn't ask for it. Cosmic Encounter is famously a game where big groups of people just get together around a table, get all kinds of crazy special alien special powers, and then spend a few hours just trying to backstab each other, make and break um, you know deals and alliances, and get airy majority on a bunch of planets to win the game by whatever means necessary. And the the... The thing that has always made Cosmic Encounter special is the insane amount of variety and variability between all the cool special alien races. Well, anyway, they brought out a two-player-only version, which uh, was unthinkable before because you always need at least three, and most people say you need four or five to make Cosmic Encounter work. But they did send me a copy, and Jen and I had a little bit of time one afternoon. I said, okay, what the heck? The rulebook is short. Let's give it a try. Jen and I sat down and played it. And we enjoyed it. We had a good time. Uh, th- this is a duel where um, every round, uh, a card is going to be drawn from one of three decks. And that card will tell us what's happening this round. Whether we are going to duel over a new planet, which is a big part of it. Whether we are going to be collecting resources we can use for future duels. Um, or, the third deck, whether we are just going to do some kind of crazy, off-the-wall, unexpected event. And whatever one of those three things we do, after the round is over, that card tells us, now draw a card from the next... Uh, from a different deck. And um, so, not only do we know what we're doing now, but we can see, oh, next round there's going to be another duel. Or next round there's going to be resources coming. And we're doing a duel now, so I know that. And how does the duel work? Well, this is a high-card style game, where each of us has a hand of cards numbered... um, There are negative numbers up to 42. And basically, whoever plays the high card wins. But... Before that happens, we have to deploy our ships to the planet. And whoever has the most ships on the planet gets a bonus. Um, and you know they could put them over the top. And basically, every time a duel starts, we have to, in secret, decide how many ships are we going to send, which uh, card are we going to play you know, for our, our main value, and which of our bonuses are we going to play. Um, the ones that take out some of the alien, uh, our opponent's ships, or protect our own ships, or get the bonuses back. So we have to make all these decisions in secret, and then reveal them one at a time um, to see how the duel, or in some cases, the other types of contests work out. And it's really sharp. It, the whole game is 100% Vicini style. Right. I know you've only got... You either have your shields or you're not going to bother with your shields. You're going to try and deploy your other stuff back because I don't think you care about this planet. In fact, the interesting thing is every time we're dueling for a planet, you might want to lose instead of win because the loser always gets something. And sometimes, depending on your situation, the thing you get for losing might be better than the planet itself. And so you might be trying to lose. And I got to think, is she trying to lose? Is that, or is she really caring about this and she's going to protect her ships? If she's going to protect her ships, then I shouldn't even bother wasting tr- my time trying to destroy ships. I should just go on ahead and recall my other stuff too for the future. But I don't know. Okay, so I'm going to do this. And um, what card am I going to play? Um, you know, Because I've got advantage and or am I going to have advantage and this and that and the other? Or is she going to use an envoy that completely reverses the polarity of everything? Oh, because did I mention? There are alien envoys that are additional special powers that we can deploy that just completely changes the rules. And it's interesting. I'm sure you've probably heard of Flux, um, which is a game that's famous for, yeah, you try to do your best, but then the game just throws random stuff at you, and there's no way to predict what's going to happen, and everybody just tries to surf the wave of all this constantly changing, evolving... um, You know, Munchkin is the same thing, but mostly Flux. And I mean, that's not something I've ever been interested in. 
This may sound kind of flux-like because there's so much game-changing stuff. The game could just pivot at the drop of a hat and suddenly every rule is different. And I was just describing the basic rules, but they're constantly changing. But here, it's not because of random happenstance. It's because of player choice. And there is a surprising a surprising amount of depth to the mind games that go on um, because of the three levels of commitment that players have to put down on table and reveal over time for every single duel they do. And it's not just about this duel, it's about the next duel. It's about what am I still going to have in hand after this? What are you still going to have? How many more ships are you going to have? Um, you know, um, Because maybe this is going to wipe you out? Sure, I'll let you have this planet now because then I'll be able to make a run on the next three and win the game. Really clever, gorgeous production, um, funny, super uh, entertaining, engaging, and yeah, we liked it. Why is it 15? Because at the end of the day, it is still a game 100% devoted to trying to figure out, right, how can I outsmart you and prevent you from doing what you want? And I don't know. I think we're going to play it some more. I think we're going to try, because the game itself is so good, we're going to see if we can come to terms with the dueling nature. It might not be a keeper for us, but wow, if Jen and I were duelers, this totally would, because there is so, there is layer upon layer here. I'm very impressed by my number 15, Cosmic Encounter Duel. Then we move on to number 14, Tang Garden, which turns out to be kind of a Marmite tile land game. People love it, or they hate it. Although, when I filmed my run-through originally, I was kind of in the middle. That's because... It is a tiling game, which I tend to love. It's a really simple one. And some people got the... Uh, I, I maybe didn't speak as well as I should have. Some people thought I was saying in my final thoughts when I filmed this that, oh, it's lighter than, uh, uh, than Carcassonne. That is not the case. This game has surprising depth as well. Um, but it looks incredibly simple. It looks simpler than Carcassonne because most of the time on your turn, you're just going to play a tile and depending on where it goes, you have to line up tiles with existing tiles. You are going to gather some resources that you can ultimately convert into points and uh, and then just you know keep on going. Grab a tile, take one of the tiles from your hand, play it as the garden grows. It's a gorgeous garden, by the way. Um, you know the, the final result of this game is gobsmackingly beautiful and it looks great all the way through as well. But it seems really simple at first. But the conundrum is every player at any given time has a patron, I think you're called, that you are trying to bear in mind. Right, I might just be trying to put this tile down because I'll be able to get some resources and I'm doing it in such a way that doesn't give you the opportunity to get a lot of stuff. But in the back of my mind, I'm remembering I've got the monk and the monk wants to see a lot of rockery. Because while the monk is still my patron on my side, he gives me some kind of very cool benefit as a way of scoring points or changing the rules. Sooner or later though, on a turn, I will want to deploy him out to the garden so that I can lock in a whole bunch of special points. And what I've been doing up to that point is, while it might look, I'm just trying to get resources out of this garden so that I can get points. I am actually trying to sculpt this garden specifically for my monk or the or the queen or the, the child or whoever it might be. And sooner or later, I will give up that character, put them out in the garden so I can score big points if I built the garden correctly and you haven't stopped me. And, um, but then I say goodbye to that amazing special power. But hopefully, I've got more. And oops, I don't have enough long video. Let's rewind and get some more video for this. Oh dear. I didn't think I was going to talk about Tang Garden so long. Um, but anyway, that's the core of the game, and it's great. The production is great. The faux 3D nature of the outer... There's, in addition to regular two-dimensional tile laying, there's kind of some 3D tile laying as well. Um, the, and it's great. 
my problem was one of the things you can do is decorate the tiles that are going out. And I hated the way it was implemented. I mean, vehemently hated it. If it had, uh, you know, based on the, the standard rules for decorations, this would have been my lowest rated game of the month. And Jen and I would just walk away from it. We really despised the, um, it introduced such an insanely big swingy level of luck. And yes, it's mitigatable luck, but we, in everything else, this game is surprisingly deep and crunchy with lots of layer upon layer of decision making. But those decorations, we hated them. The developers agreed that for a certain type of player, maybe they are a little bit too swingy, and they have now released a uh, variant. It's actually the first of many. They're planning, I mean, you can go to their website. They're planning on using a whole bunch of game-changing variants, which is awesome. The game has a future. And I can definitely say now, having played it, that fixed our problems, and we definitely found ourselves enjoying it. I probably want to play it a bit more, but we didn't get a chance. But on the whole, I would say this is now a very good tile layer if you play with the variant, which I talk about in my final thoughts. And I've got a link for if you want to go check that out. So... I think we're we're not quite to the point of loving it, but I think we could grow to love it, um, particularly because it's got tons of expansion content as well. But it's a gorgeous game. It's fast playing. There's a lot of depth to it. And now my big problem is fixed with my number 14, Tang Garden. Then we go on to number 13, Alubari, a nice cup of tea. Now, this is basically the sequel to Snowdonia, which is one of my favorite worker placement games of all time. Snowdonia is absolutely awesome. An incredibly tension-filled worker placement game where we are trying to clear rubble, to lay track, to build stations, to create the Snowdonia line. You know, loosely following the reality of history while trying to anticipate what the weather is going to do and getting all kinds of contracts to give us tons of special powers. And Snowdonia is amazing. Alubari does everything I just said. Some of it in slightly different ways, but all the main DNA of Snowdonia is Alubari. But there are some very significant tweaks and changes. One is the um, divorcing between clearing out rubble versus um, laying track. Which is interesting. I don't know if I like it. I kind of like the synergy between all the different systems coming together in Snowdonia. But I, I was probably fine with Alubari as well. My, my issue with Alubari, the reason that the sequel to one of my favorite worker placement games of all time didn't make it into my top 10 this month is because it, it is, uh, it's no longer set in Wales. It's set in colonial era India. And a big portion of the game is coal has been replaced with chai tea. And chai tea is insanely powerful compared to to coal as a resource. And Alubari becomes... It's kind of like what I was talking about earlier with Reavers of Midgard. It becomes an incredibly generous game. Where Snowdonia was an incredibly tension-filled, tight race of just trying to scrape by, getting whatever you could. And interestingly, racing against the game itself. Because the game, if players take too long, the game will finish it and, and deny everything to everybody. That's in Alibari too. But now, the game is much more laid back and doesn't push players very hard. And at the same time, players can use chai tea in a way you could never use coal to really get super powerful moves. And you do it a lot. So, much like uh, Ch uh, Reavers of Midgard, this becomes a very laid back game. Uh, a game of abundance and overflow. And for me and Jen, we missed the hard scrabble tough knocks just trying to figure out a way to make this work. It's great, 
And again, for players who would prefer a game that doesn't really make you sweat and burn for every little success. If for players who's like, look, I want to have a good time. I want the good times to keep on rolling and I surf that wave of awesome stuff. Alubari may be your cup of tea. But for me and Jen... um, For us, I think we still got to go back to Snowdonia because we want a game that is mean to us. And Alubari, it's like going over to somebody's house and sitting down and having a lovely, relaxing, warm, delicious cup of tea. And it delivers on that great, while being a solid worker placement, goods conversion game. And uh, that's my number 13, Alubari, a nice cup of tea. And we got number 12, The Relics of Rajavihara, which is another paid Kickstarter preview. And this is a solo-only game. Uh, Although it's interesting, Jen and I found we very much enjoyed it as a cooperative game. Kind of a contrast to Spirits of the Forest Moonlight, which was a solo game that, you know, they put in cooperative rules. For Relics, they put no cooperative rules in, but but, you know, if players want, they can puzzle it out together. And Jen and I really enjoyed this. What is this game? Uh, It is a game that basically emulates old classic video game puzzle games like Adventures of Lolo, Kickle Cubicle, um, you know, and, and more modern ones as well where a player has a room that there's a relic they have to get, and they have to push boxes around, stack them up, figure out ways to uh, use special powers to get to the gym. And that sounds really simple, but these puzzles get fiendishly clever, and it was just a blast. It was a huge nostalgia uh, push for us, and yeah, we adored this game, and I can't wait for the final so we can play through all the missions. Go check out my uh, Kickstarter, you know, my Kickstarter preview I did for it, and um, it should be pretty obvious if it's going to be something you enjoy as well. But yeah, I mean, this hit our nostalgia buttons in the biggest, baddest way. And even though it's officially a solo game, Jen and I loved puzzling Relics of uh, Raja Vihara out together. And that was my number 12. Then there is number 11, Dice Settlers, The Western Sea. So I covered Dice Settlers a few years ago when it was on Kickstarter, and I hadn't really played it since. Because it's ostensibly a 4X game, you know, uh, explore, expand, exploit, exterminate, but really lightweight on all of those features, because really, Dice Settlers, at, first and foremost, every round you're going to roll three or more dice, and you have tons of ways that you can manipulate those dice to get them to do what you want to do, and then once you've got the right dice, you spend them to do a couple of actions every round, and these actions are all about exploring and laying more tiles, expanding your dominion over those tiles, exploiting them for resources, and sometimes fighting each other to exterminate, kick you out of a tile I'm in, so I've got sole dominion over it, and so I can maintain the special power it gives. And at the time, Jen and I were really impressed by this effectively an area control game, how Jen and I could find ourselves enjoying it. We wish the area control wasn't there, but the dice play in this game is so good, so good, that we were um, willing to make do. Um, but, but I only played the Kickstarter uh, prototype, never actually played the final game. Cut to this year, I've now got a full retail copy of the game and the excellent expansion that adds so much stuff. Four really big modules that really add, uh, you know, adds an ocean to explore, adds envoys with embassies, uh, special player powers, new unique special dice that weren't in the original, um, you know, alternate ways to score points based on terraforming, basically. Lots of really great stuff. And so Jen and I played this with all the modules turned on, which was maybe a bit much, quite frankly. But we were reminded, once again, just how amazing the core dice manipulation game is here. And it's just gotten better. 
I may I put it at 11 because I'm still not sure how we feel about the fact that inevitably, no matter what, no matter how much we look, I'm just going to do my thing, you do your thing. We're going to develop different technologies. What up? Sooner or later, I'm going to come and I'm going to attack you and I'm going to kick you out of there so you lose that power because the game's almost over and I want to have a nine-point swing in my favor and boom, you're dead. And oh, now you're going to fight me back. And it seems like every time we play, we end up... And it was like, oh, I don't want that. But the game is so good. Oh, it's so good. So I'm really on the fence about this. It's brilliant. Dice Settler was already a phenomenal dice manipulation game with a little miniature 4X game. And now it's so much more... But it's still that same heart of it, and it's still something Jen and I struggle with. If we, um, because we're we're loving it until the shooting starts, and we're like, oh, but we have to. The game puts the situations where this is the best move I can make. If I mean, because you left yourself too exposed, uh, or whatever it might be. So, brilliant game, maybe not for us. I'm still on the fence about my number eleven dice settlers. The Western Sea expansion. Then we move on to number 10. Oh my goodness, Zen Garden is fantastic. We like this a lot. And after such an insanely busy month of 22 games, I was so stressed out this week. And we still had to do our um, Rest and Relax video, which is a run-through that Jen and I film every month only for backers of the show on Patreon. Um, And like, oh... We really need something restful and relaxful. You know what this says? Zen Garden. It That Zen, it's in the title. It promises, and yeah, we loved this game. We played it for the, uh, you know, for the, the Rest and Relax video, and then we played it again immediately afterwards. This is totally a keeper. It's at its heart. It's a gateway-ish level game. Every round, you're going to um, draft one or two tiles in a two-player game and put them into your little 4 by 4 grid because you're trying to make the best Zen Garden to impress the Emperor. Standard stuff. Um, the interesting thing about this game is, you know, I mean, you're, you're trying to match terrain types and path types to score points. You're trying to get majorities in the different types of decorations that come on the tiles. You um, Some tiles that you might really want, you have to spend points. You have to sacrifice points to get the tile you really want. Or do you wait and for it to get cheaper and go for a tile that might work well or keep a tile away from your opponent? All that kind of drafting stuff and tiling stuff on a very tight little board that forces tough, tough decisions. Um, but the interesting thing about it is, as part of setup, you can give yourself, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You can give yourself up to 11 unique objectives for scoring at the end of the game. At the minimum, there will be one, two, three, four, five, six. Every time you play, there will be at least six objectives, four of them unique from game to game, that you that you are building your um, garden to try to achieve. Just that is a lot. A lot of variability every time you play. But Jen and I, we played it full-on hardcore where there were 11 objectives. And of course, it's impossible to chase after 11 objectives. But so much flexibility, so much crunchiness. We were really super-duper impressed by this. And uh, yeah, definitely a keeper. Definitely. And it's a nice little... It's also a great filler. It's like a 20-minute game. But it's a 20-minute game with crunch when you play it at full-on all the objectives are activated, which is the only way I think we'd want to play it. It's our number 10 of the month, Zen Garden. Excellent stuff. Then we move on to number nine with a smile and a gun, which is another paid Kickstarter preview. And here's the interesting thing, folks. This is a Prohibition era gangster simulation area control game where players are sending out their mobsters to various uh, districts of the city trying to maintain control, have the majority in those areas um, so that they can get um, rewards. 
and um, trying to stay one step ahead of your opponent because I mean that you know it's it can be a bitter battle for whoever comes in um, you know the lead and gets the really important thing that's part of the set collection they're trying to do or the special power that they really need or whatever. Um, and it's all driven by a rondelle because every turn you're going to uh, draft a couple of dice and those dice tell you where you can move around the rondelle to deploy your troops. So it's a dice drafting game. It's an area control game. It's also interesting because it's not just you and your opponent. This is a two-player only game or solo. There are cops who um, might beat both of us and you might, well, I can't take that area, but I can send the cops over there to get you arrested so you won't get it either. So there's a lot of tit-for-tat, uh, brinksmanship, take that kind of stuff. And we loved it! And more to the point, this is a game all about gangsters, and Jen loved it! This game, we should have hated it because of the gameplay, because of the theme for Jen. But we had so much fun. It's so fast. Really, at its heart, it is a dice-drafting rondelle game with miners in area control. But um, that, you know, there, there, so it has a little bit of bite. But, you know, unlike Dice Settlers, which is kind of the same thing, it's really a dice manipulation uh, resource game, which has a little bit of fighting. That's kind of what The Smile and a Gun is. But in Dice Settlers, I can really mess with you. Something you've worked on for the whole game, I can just come in and take it from you in a heartbeat. Smile and a Gun, it's very fast. And um, we basically go through, was it three rounds, I think? And at the end of each round, we build up our forces really quick, and then we resolve all of the districts, and then everything clears out and we go again. So everything is very ephemeral. Everything is very... Nothing is permanent. It doesn't feel like this is my district that I... that you know I, I don't feel bad kicking Jen out of a place or you know, messing with her because it was no big deal. It was just a couple of points. It's not like it was like her whole overall game she was trying to achieve. I'm super duper impressed by this game. It's still on Kickstarter right now, and I hope it succeeds. This has been the biggest surprise for us in months, if not years. I originally, when the uh, when the designer publisher contacted me and said, "Hey, I, I please read my rules. I know you're going to think you're not going to like it, but I've studied you for years. I think even though this is an area control game, you might like it." And I was like, "Okay, pal, I'm not going to like it. I read the rules. Oh my god." That sounds really sharp. I really like this design. Go watch my run-through to see why, because there's some really clever stuff that the Rondell does. And I said, okay, fine. I'll film it, and I'll probably say, boy, this is really great. I wish we could enjoy it, but Jen hates the theme, and we both hate the area control. And that's not what's happened, folks. I've come here to tell you, we enjoy the game because of the area control. Jen still would much rather be anything other than gangsters. Um, but still, wow. With a smile and a gun, amazing. Uh, it would. I mean, if I someday I'm going to update my top ten biggest surprises in in gaming history with a smile and a gun. Rates very high. One of the biggest surprises I've ever had, considering how much we really dig, 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 dig deep with a smile and a gun. My number nine of the month. Then we go on to number eight, Altiplano the Traveler, which is an expansion for Altiplano, which we filmed live in front of the internet. Uh, all you can still go watch that. And uh, yeah, we already really liked Altiplano. And the thing I was most excited about with Altiplano the Traveler is it shipped with um, new rules that, uh, I, I, that that sped the game up. That basically lets you skip the entire first age. And if there's one complaint I had about the original Altiplano, oh man, it's long. Man, 
alive. It is a long, long game. And so I was very excited. I mean, the Traveler expansion adds a bunch of cool new things. Uh, most notably, the Traveler himself, which is a character who moves around on the same rondelle that players are traveling to be able to do all of their worker placement goods conversion stuff in the uh, Andes Mountains. And um, you know, he's always moving, and we're always trying to catch up with him, because often the best... Uh, actions you can do is by visiting him, but he's always on the move trying to catch that traveler. Um, of course, Altiplano itself, in case you didn't know, is a bag builder. It's the sequel from the same designer as Orléans, and we already thought Orléans was supplanted, surpassed by Altiplano, because Altiplano did bag building better. My only problem was Orléans, if you, if you had to compare and contrast, so if I can only get one, which would it be, Orléans or Altiplano? Altiplano had better setup variability, had better bag building, had more interesting world interaction, but Orléans had a bajillion expansions. And um, so I always said, yeah, Orléans. And I was hoping Traveler would tip the scales, especially because it was going to make it shorter. Here's the deal, though. All the new stuff that gets added makes the game so much longer that it ends up taking just as long as it ever did. Um, that's why they shortened the game, because they made the rest of the game so long. So I'm still hoping for a shorter version of Altiplano somewhere down the road. But uh, don't get me wrong, Jen and I, we had a blast playing it, and we loved all the new content for it. I do have one bitter disappointment. I do not like the way they introduced um, events in the game. They're swingy. They are definitely lucky, and for a game this long, I don't want luck to play as big of a role as it does in Altiplano the Traveler. In fact, I'm super disappointed because the events in Orléans are some of the is one of the best implementations of events in the history of the industry. And I cannot believe this expansion didn't build on that strength. So, overall, Altiplano is already a phenomenal game, already a keeper. Uh, the Traveler makes it even better. I'd have to think if... I'm not sure if the tra if Altiplano eclipses Orléans yet, though. Even though it's better by every metric. But, uh, you know, the Traveler... Oh, man, just a couple little changes I would have loved to see. But still, great, great game. Uh, number eight. I mean, it's number eight, after all. Uh, or, or Altiplano, the Traveler. Then we go on to number seven, which is Perseverance 1 and 2. It is another paid preview for a game that's on Kickstarter. I think it might have closed by now. Not sure. This is a really phenomenal setting. I love the uh, subject matter. It's a competitive game where players were passengers on a luxury cruise liner that washed up on shore of a mysterious island full of dinosaurs. And uh, we have to band together to survive. And so, it's interesting. Perseverance uh, 1 and 2, that's its full title. Perseverance 1 and 2 is two games in one box. It's two chapters of an epic four-chapter story that will be told over several years from the same publisher, Mind Clash. Chapter 1, which is a full standalone game, is all about the first weeks of our time on this island. As we are setting up camp on the beach, and every night, dinosaurs come crashing in and destroying our camp and eating all our people. Um, both Perseverance 1 and 2 are dice drafting games uh, with cool special custom dice, a lot of tension around the dice draft, done very, very well, and um, really appreciate that. Some, you know, uh, some uh, dice drafting, dice worker replacement -y type stuff with uh, generating resources, activating special powers, and most importantly, manning the defenses of our beachhead to try to fight back the dinosaurs that are going to keep coming. And that's one of the main ways you can score points in this game is by being 
being a really great defender of the camp. But it's by far not the only way to go. You could just be a really great leader around camp and leave the defending to other players. Or you could let one player do the majority of the defending and you just kind of piggyback off of them and get a little bit of glory yourself. Really sharp stuff. Chapter 1. Uh, my only issue with it was... It's, we prefer two because one, there is actually a surprising amount of jockeying for position you can do to get your opponent's warriors killed by the dinosaurs. And uh, yeah, there, there's some sneaky tricks you can pull. But hey, it's the early days. We're just doing everything we can to survive. But still, it's a fully fleshed out game that works really well. Perseverance Episode 2 takes place... Uh, a year later. We've now been on the island for over a year. We've got our established beachhead. We have built a wall. And the dinosaurs can't get in anymore. And so, even though it's still the same core um, dice drafting, uh, dice worker replacement-y kind of game that part one was, now, instead of all of our efforts being devoted to building up defenses, now our efforts are devoted to exploring the island and finding stuff and establishing outposts and then defending those outposts for more dinosaurs. But because a year has passed in the storyline of this game, we have learned, we've started to learn how to tame dinosaurs and actually use them as a resource. Really cool. Uh, Perseverance 2, I think, is a heavier game than 1. Um, but it's also, it doesn't have quite as much cutthroatedness. Although, I, I, Jen and I did not mind the cutthroatness in, in one. We just enjoyed two because two is much more live and let live. But they were both great. And the beautiful thing about this, you could play either one of these as a standalone game, or you can combine them into the first two chapters, or I'm sorry, the first four chapters of an ultimate eight-chapter campaign that you will play through once the second game comes out in a couple of years. That tells the story from the first weeks to the first few years, I think, to the first few decades. And it becomes a generational game because this weird, mysterious island, we're not getting off of it, and so we have to find a way to survive. So, I love the gameplay. I love the ambition. I love the dice drafting. I love the presentation. This game is phenomenal. I like two more than one. I like one a lot. I love the campaign play, which sadly I can only read about. I haven't actually gotten a chance to play it yet, but I think that's the secret sauce that'll really make Perseverance come alive. And it's why it's my number seven of the month, Perseverance 1 and 2. Okay, I'm going to number six, Plunderous. This is a very, very strange entry for me, folks. A very good friend of mine that I've known for years is designing a game called Plunders. He's been working on it for years. For as long as I've known him, really. I mean, he's been working on this for over five years now and working hard on it. Uh, you know, this game has gone through I don't know how many thousands of hours of playtests as he keeps on, you know, he's a perfectionist. He keeps noodling. He keeps tweaking. He keeps massaging. And he's been talking to me about this game for years. Now, I never really had that much interest. I was academically, because he's a friend of mine, and I'd give him advice if he had questions about, well, how did this game do this or that? Because obviously I play a lot more games than him. Um, although he plays a lot of games too. Anyway, though, um, it was his birthday this month. And he said, you know, I've asked you a few times over the years if you'd play the game, and you've always said no. It's my birthday. Will you play the game with me? And I said, okay, yes. Okay, you got me. And so we set up and played a uh, game of Plunderous on Tabletopia. It's a pre-alpha form. Um, and you know, this is going on Kickstarter. And I'll come back to that in a second. Because this is not a paid preview. This is just... But bear in mind, this is a friend of mine's game. But um, I'll still tell you what I think. You can take my opinions with a grain of salt, as always. 
Uh, it is a definite 4X style game. Forget about Dice Settlers. It's kind of a baby 4X game. It's got a little bit of the X's. This is all about exploring, expanding, exploiting, and exterminating. It is a steampunk uh, Caribbean pirate game. Uh, you know, very high fantastical stuff. The game is all about um, recruiting crew, using their special powers to sail the, 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 the new Caribbean, it's called, because like I said, it's a steampunk game that was randomly generated every time you play. Um, you know, pulling into port, conquering them, and then exploiting the heck out of those ports to get the resources to, um, you know, uh, you know, keep your little engine going, building resource engines uh, out of your crew members, because crew members can be used for a million different things. Every crew you recruit, which is one of the things you can do every round, can be used for his own special powers, can be used to buy other stuff, can be used to trigger council meetings, can't... There's like seven or eight things every... I mean, so this is like the ultimate multi-use card game. And folks, if you know my show, if you ever watch my top 10 favorite game mechanisms, multi-use cards is one of my favorite things in the universe. And it works here so well. So well. This is definitely not a game I should like. It is a three-player minimum because it is a 4X game. Um, it is. It has an insanely high dollop of opportunities for you to build gigantic steam mechalodons and trash everybody else, and um, you know become the terror of the seven seas. It is full to the brim of negotiations. And oh, I see you've got a steam mech. Uh, how about I bribe you to engage in a peaceful uh, treaty with me? Um, you know, and, and all kinds of stuff. All these things are things that I shouldn't like. I had such an amazing time playing this game. It was a three-hour game, although it went longer because we were playing it digitally online. So that slows everything down. I actually won. And man, here's the thing. I talked to um, Andy about it. Andrew, he prefers. I call him Andy. Um, nobody wants to call him Andy. Um, anyway, though... And you know, he can he can tell you stories about almost every game he's ever played of this, going back five years. And our unique story, obviously, I was the Care Bear. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew I wasn't going to be attacking. I was just going to be trying to do my little, um, you know, engine building, uh, empire expanding, explore. I was going to mostly focus on exploring and expanding, no extermination. And um, uh, meanwhile, somebody else, a very aggressive player, built a mech very early in the game and started becoming a terror of the seas. One of the things you can do in this game is um, call council meetings, parliament basically, and vote different rules of the game down. So if we wanted, I was planning, I said, hey everybody, I know you're under attack, don't worry, next round, I am going to open up a vote to ban all mechs from the game. And, um, and my God, yeah, of course, we're all going to do this. We're going to get this mech out of here. And he realized it, the aggressive player. And meanwhile, another thing I did is, when I was recruiting crew, th all three of the, um, the uh, oh, what do you call them, the invaders, the crew that make you really good at attacking other players' ports, they all came out, and on one turn, I hired them all. Not intending to ever use them, but to actually sell them away as because you can use them as resources. You can use these cards for a million different things. I got them all, and the aggressive player said, oh my god, ah, I needed those! I, I tell you what, tell you what, tell you what. And, I, and you can see I was eating them. I was basically removing them from the game. I was going to force this game to be peaceful. Because that's one of the cruxes of this game. This game can evolve in a million different ways. It's such a big open sandbox. And so he said, tell you what, tell you what, tell you what, tell you what, tell you what. I will trade you my mech for one of those Ravager cards. And that was an amazing deal.
And, you know, the other guys who were playing, who had played the game before, said, oh my god, that's an insane deal. But it's because I had him. He couldn't, he wasn't going to be able to attack it if, if he couldn't get one of those before they were all removed from the game. And um, I said, yeah, I don't want a mech. What am I going to do with that? And here's the thing. Even though this is a gigantic sandbox game, there are three different um, objective systems. You have secret goals, and there are two different styles of public goals that everybody's chasing after. And there was a huge, high-scoring goal for scuppering your own mech. And he said, tell you what, I will give you this mech, not to attack anybody, but to scupper it so you can get this objective complete over here. That'll be worth a ton of points to you. All I want is one of those cards. They were so cheap because I was able to buy them all up and nobody expected that to happen. And so I agreed. And um, somebody else around the table said, well, that was like giving a weapon of max destruction to Gandhi. And we all just had to laugh. And it was an amazing thing. And then it took me a while to finish that objective. And during that time, there was another player who kept saying, you know, I could call a council and, and destroy your mech before you get a chance to do that. You want to pay something? Uh, you want to pay me a little something to keep from uh, calling that council meeting? And folks, I'm a Care Bear. But my response to him was, if you do that, my mech will destroy you. And I had no choice. I had to do it because that was my bargaining chip. I threatened, and it was amazing. And everybody was just blowing their mind. It was just, it was insane. That is the type of game this is. And having spent a few hours playing this, I now, I think I better than ever understand the love people have for TI4 or, or you know, Twilight Imperium 4 or um, the Game of Thrones game. Because even though I was a total care bear, I never listed a finger against anybody. But man, I, I was in every negotiation. I was the center of the game uh, because I had the power. And everybody knew I could use it, even though I was just trying to get rid of it. And, and, and afterwards, Andy said, yeah, that was a game unlike any one, other one I've ever played. And uh, every game is like that. And I got to say, folks, I was blown away. Like I said, Plunderous is from a friend of mine. So take my opinion with a grain of salt. Also, here's the other thing. I was willing to do it because Andrew has been in parallel to the main 4X game that he's been working on for half a decade, uh, and it's going to go on Kickstarter soon. He's been working on an expansion to turn it into a cooperative game, and I have been super involved with that. I don't know if he goes so far as to say I was a co-designer on it, but I have been putting a ton of work, and so I was happy to finally get a chance to play Plunderous so I could apply my understanding of the core game so I could help him better shape the cooperative game. Full disclosure, folks, I am planning on doing a paid Kickstarter preview for Plunderous Reveille, which is the expansion when it goes on Kickstarter, which might be in August. I don't know. Andrew is a perfectionist. Who knows when he'll get it done? Because uh, he will not stop until it's perfect. But in the meantime, I'm telling you about all the games I played this month, and I played Plunderous. I played it online, which I do not like doing. I played a 4X game full of backstabby cutthroat in this, which I do not like doing, and I had an amazing time. That's my number six of the month, Plunderous. Okay, number five is My City. This is a legacy game from Reiner Knizia, the surely the most respected and prolific modern designer, modern Euro designer in the industry, with good reason. This is him doing a uh, mixing two things I love. I love legacy style games, and I love polyomino Tetris tile layers. And this game combines those things so brilliantly. And here's the deal. This would be my number one game of the month if I were judging it. This would be in my top 10 games of the year, hands down, if I were judging it based off the strength of its legacy campaign, which plays out over 24 games, and each game lasts about 10 or 15 minutes. So it's like a filler so it's a legacy filler, and it's just the way it grows and evolves. 
Just brilliant. Best of class stuff. One of the best legacy games, period. Um, But here's the thing. After you're finished with the campaign, the game comes with eternal mode rules, which means you can continue playing the game forever. And it's a good game when you play it that way. And in fact, you never even have to open the envelopes. You do not have to play this game as a legacy at all if you don't want to put stickers on things or whatever. You can play it just as a standalone game where it's competing with with uh, Cottage Garden and Patchwork and you know Spring Meadow as another game that is all about polyomino tiling. In fact, I demoed that in my run-through, so I didn't want to do any spoilers of the actual campaign, so I demoed how the, the, the standalone game works. The standalone game is good, but it could have been amazing. I talk about this in my final thoughts, without going into spoilers, what I wish Reiner and Cosmos, the publisher, had done to make this uh, my number one game of the month, my um, easily my top five of the year. There were a couple of choices they could have made that would have turned this as an ongoing ever you know evergreen game into one of the best polyomino games on the market, right up there with Baron Park and Isle of Cats. And they didn't, and it breaks my heart. It's still very, very good. It's still a keeper. This rating is kind of a mishmash. Um, because it's acknowledging the fact that I loved the the campaign. I thought it was an amazing legacy campaign. But that I only like the ongoing campaign. And if they had done things differently, and I believe they can. Folks, I Reiner Knizia, as I mentioned earlier, maybe knows my name now. If Hopefully, if he was impressed by the suggestions I made for Tutankhamun, and if those make it into that game, which I talked about earlier in this run-through, maybe my suggestions that I made for my city will somehow reach his ear, and he will be swayed by my passion, because this could be converted still um, with, with some special variant rules that I would want him to sign off on saying, yes, the, this is my special way. Because here's the problem. Once you finish the game, probably 70% of all the really cool legacy stuff gets thrown away and it can't be used anymore. Because you play a slightly souped-up version of the introductory game, and it's a super lightweight gateway. And that's heartbreaking. I hated throwing all that stuff away. I know how to bring it all back. Cosmos. Get Reiner Knizia on the phone. This game could be amazing. Fingers crossed they do. Fingers crossed I've got the ear of the man himself. Because even still, it's my number five of the month. But it could have been my number one. That's my city. Okay. And we got Pendulum. Which is certainly going to be one of the ultimate love-it-or-hate-it games. Jen and I love it. Obviously, it's our number four. Uh, Some people are hating it with the fire of a thousand suns, even though they haven't played it yet, because it's not even available for pre-order. But this is a real-time competitive worker placement game where um, we are sending our workers out to spots on the board to gather resources, to convert into other resources, to complete objectives, to score points, to become the new Forever King. It's a, I'll admit, it's a fairly dry abstractus. It's kind of low on theme, but that's because it's a real-time game. And once the sand timers start, you don't have time to start thinking about, oh, what was it like, my epic trek to the mine so that I could get that gold. There's no time for that. You just activate the guy and you get the gold. Um, But 
The brilliant thing about this game is there are three different times sand timers. One that runs 45 seconds, one that runs two minutes, one that runs three minutes. They, so there's three different sections of the board that are out of sync with each other. And um, where you send your workers is based very much on, do I go to the 45-second thing where I can send a worker down there, get something done, and get him back in less than a minute? Or do I send him over there to the super powerful action, but I won't see him for three minutes? Well, that all depends on which character you're playing, because each of uh, the five different playable characters Characters have wildly different cool special powers that break all the main uh, rules of the game. So it's a very good real-time worker placement competitive game. Jen, I enjoyed it a lot that way. But here's the shocker, folks. The reason this rate's so high for me is because it comes with a turn-based variant where for people who hate real-time stuff, you can completely ignore the sand timers. And instead of the passage of time in the game before your workers are available to you again to do stuff, instead of waiting three minutes, two minutes, or 45 seconds, you wait until one, two, or three rounds pass. So you get the same kind of tension of, when will I get my guy back so I can do the next thing? Do I submit him to this? I won't see him for half of the round kind of thing. But without any of the, I must choose quickly. And here's the deal. You might think, as I did when I first read the rules, oh, that's just going to be an afterthought. They just threw that in just to placate people. Here's the deal. Jen and I enjoy the game most played not real-time, but turn-based. Turn into a turn-based game? This game makes me feel very much... It reminds me a lot of Zulk in the Mayan Calendar, which was another worker placement game all about the passage of time. You set your workers out. It's going to take time for them to get their stuff done, and you can't see them until they're back. This is kind of like a streamlined, fast-to-the-metal version of Zulk in the Mayan Calendar. Um, And in Zulk in the Mayan Calendar, time passes by rotating the gears. Here it passes by either watching sand count down in a sand timer, or by just moving forward on a progress meter, um, on, on a round tracker. So, I'm super impressed by this game. And uh, Oh, also, by the way, it has a really great solo game, too. How often do you find really phenomenal, real-time worker placement solo games um, they, you know, that, that are, are scaled brilliantly? Very impressed about everything about this game. Some people won't like it um, for various and reasons. I talk about all of that in my final thoughts, but all I'm going to say right now is... My number four of the month is Pendulum. Then we got my number three of the month. Another expansion, Dominion Menagerie. Just when I thought I was out, Donald X Vaccarino pulls me back in. Last year, I did my um, countdown of all the Dominion expansions. I thought that was it. But now Menagerie is out, so of course we played it. It's not my favorite. I didn't rank it. I'd probably put it... I'd have to think about somewhere like maybe four... Five, three, four, five. No, 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 not three. Either four or number five. Um, if you want to go back and look at my ranking of all of the other, because it's great. It's not the greatest. Um, it introduces some little stuff. It introduces two big ideas. The uh, theme is menagerie. It's supposedly all about animals. And one of the new types of cards are way of the insert animal, way of the worm, way of the mouse, way of the snake. One of these is going to be in play every time you play the game. And on your turn, if you play an action card, I'm going to assume you know how to play Dominion, which is the ultimate deck builder. When you play an action card, instead of doing the action it says, you can do whatever the way of says. So it like turns every single card into a multi-use card. And that's brilliant. I love it a lot. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry, I lied. There are three new things in this game. There's ways, there's horses. 
I don't know if they should have been called Menagerie. It really, I mean, I guess that deck of ways is the Menagerie, but you, you never actually get a Menagerie of animals in this game. The main animal you get in this game is horses. There is a super thick deck of horses, and horses are a very simple card that you play them. They give you um, draw two cards and get one more action. So basically, they are an accelerator. But after you've done it, you lose them. You use them once, and then they're gone. And um, there are a lot of cards that, in addition to whatever else they do, they will let you get more horses. And so, in this game, if there are horses in play, they radically speed up your deck. And in fact, there are a lot of cards that let you combo and get lots of horses, and it's one of the most thematic things I have ever felt in Dominion, is playing a turn. You know how in Dominion you can play turns where you pretty much burn through your entire deck? Because you just keep on drawing more and getting more actions and doing more buys and stuff like that. Horses make that a very common occurrence. And because it feels like, okay, I'm going to play this horse. And I went riding. And um, and that meant I drew two more cards. And these are the cards I found when I went riding. And what do you know? One of them was a horse. And then I went riding some more. And after you play four or five horses to get through your entire deck, but then they're gone. Ran hard, put away wet. Um, you feel... I mean, to me... It felt like, yeah, I went on these epic horse rides. I was Paul Revere running all over the countryside, visiting all these different places, because my horses let me do it. I love them. Jen loved them too. Um, and the way of is very cool. The third thing is this concept of exile. A new thing you can do to cards where instead of trashing them or just discarding them, you put you can put a card in exile. That means you still own the card, specifically for end-of-game scoring, but it's out of your deck. So obviously, that's a great way to get scoring cards out of your hair. But interestingly, there are a lot of cards that do all kinds of very interesting exile things. Put it, Because once a card is in exile, it's got, you can't use it anymore. You own it, but you can't use it. However, if you ever acquire, if you ever get, gain, if you ever gain another card of the same type, you have the opportunity to take the cards that are in exile and add them into your discard pile. So a lot of cards, and you'll have a one-time use, and then they're in exile until you buy another version of that card. Then you get the new version, and you get the old one back. There are lots of very cool combo-y things with exiling, and I like it a lot. So I like all three of these things. My only complaint about Dimension Menagerie is, where's the Menagerie? I honestly wish they'd called this Dominion Exile. I wish they had done that, because that's really what it feels like this game is about. And so that's a minor thematic niggle, and it's really not a complaint at all. It's my number three of the month. It's amazing. Maybe it is my number three, now that I actually verbalize these things. I'd have to think about it more, but it's great. If you love Dominion, you're going to love it. Uh, my number three, Dominion Menagerie. But then we move on to number two, Marvel Champions Doctor Strange. Feels like every month. There's another uh, a Marvel Champions expansion I get, and I end up going and playing it, sadly, solo. Um, and I played Doctor Strange, and I loved him, just like I loved everything else. What does Doctor Strange do? Well, he's the uh, master of the mystic arts, and so he's got an extra deck of cards that are just his super-duper spells that are taken from the comics, of course. At any given time, one card is available to you, the one that's at the top of the face-up deck. And when you are not in your alter ego, but when you're Doctor Strange, you can either do the normal thing of attack, or you can cast whatever spell is on the top of the deck, and then that spell goes away. And that means it's a one-and-done, it's gone. And these spells are super powerful. And the problem is... Doctor Strange has all these amazing abilities, but what if you need um, the Crimson Bands of Ciderac right now, but they're at the bottom of his deck? Well, if you go back into your day, if you take off the... You can go back and study and manipulate that deck and get the cards you need quicker. Or you can just make use of what you've got, because they're all amazing. 
So, Doctor Strange is fun. He feels, like always, incredibly thematic. It's amazing how clever they have integrated theme and mechanisms in this game. My only complaint with him, he's not my favorite. I actually definitely like um, Black Widow more last month. My only problem is he feels way overpowered to me. I don't know if he is or not. I am not enough of an expert, but I mean, I played him... Maybe he's just better at solo than the other characters. I still love him, but I feel like, man, if I'm playing with him, I gotta bump the difficulty level up because he's just... Well, if there was ever one character who should be overpowered in Marvel Champions, of course it should be Doctor Strange. And he is. And I loved him anyway. And that was my number two game of the month. But my number one is Targi the Expansion. Which Jen and I did a live playthrough for. And oh my gosh, it's amazing. We loved it. Um, And, uh, right. Where to start? Targi is a two-player-only worker placement game. And it is perfection. It is flawless. Uh, it's a game where you put workers on the outskirts of a, of a grid, and those workers triangulate to tell you what in the middle of the grid you can activate. One of the best worker placement games of all time. The best two-player-only game, I think, probably, on the market. It's, it, I'd have to double-check that, but that's my gut feeling. The expansion, not the best title, but an amazing expansion that adds a new type of resource, that adds new types of cards, sand dunes, the new resource is water, adds a new character that works opposite the robber. The robber moves clockwise around the board, blocking spaces. Now the Targia moves counterclockwise around the board, offering extra bonuses if you visit her. And it just really opens up the game. I mean, it's interesting. There would have been a danger. Targia, one of the things that's so great about it is how incredibly tense and tight it is. Much like Snedonia. Unlike some of the other games I've talked about today, and we love it. It's just so tension-filled and like, ah! Razor-thin margins everywhere. I was worried that the water, which you can use as a wild card for other stuff, and the sand dunes, which are super powerful things that you can jump on whenever you want, first come, first served. I was worried this this would be another deluge of resources coming in. And, it, and, and the Targia, who gives you extra bonuses when you visit her. And it would take away the tenseness. Somehow, the brilliance of this expansion is the game feels as tight and as challenging and as harsh as ever. And yet, we have more flexibility and more control about how we want to na- navigate those um, desert sands. And it's phenomenal. Watch the live playthrough Jen and I did. I don't think I'd ever play without expansion. And also, not for nothing, wonderfully, it also comes with a whole new deck of of tribe cards. And you have a choice. You can... Take out the old tribe cards and add the new tribe cards. Or you can mix and match the two tribes, giving... I mean... The game had infinite replayability anyway, before the expansion. Now it's got triple infinite replayability because you can mix and match and ensure every time you play, the game will feel so radically different because you can combine these two different decks of tribes to to make every game play, oh, sometimes there's a lot of water, sometimes there's not much salt, or whatever it might be. Amazing. My number one game of the month, Targi. Targi the Expansion. And that's it, folks. Phew! Oh my goodness. I am tired. What are we at now? An hour and 23 minutes. But, like I said, it was a very good month. I had a lot of fun, and I hope you had a lot of fun watching this. As always, I will be back in another month with another roundup. And that was it, folks. Thanks very much for watching. Have a very nice day. Talk to you later, and thanks to Fun again for sponsoring. So long. Uh, Bye-bye.